This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette à Paris. Let's go to Tasmania tonight. Overnight, on the Spirit of Tasmania ferry, skimming across the waves by moonlight and waking up in Devonport, and then by bus through the Midlands, through the mist, to Hobart. A beautiful journey. My son met me there, and he introduced me at Dark Mofo as someone who likes slow travel. So I hope it becomes trendy, at least for people whose time is not money. I heard that Hobart City Council had declared a climate and biodiversity emergency. And Extinction Rebellion was there, dressed in deep red mofo costumes with velvet gloves and deathly white faces. They looked like prophets of doom in the photos. So we'll hear from Councillor Bill Harvey, who put forward that urgent motion. And then I went down to the Antarctic Studies Institute of the University of Tasmania. It's down near the water on Salamanca. And I passed the Aurora Australis and a statue of the Norwegian explorer Amundsen as I went in. Tom Remini is a science translator, and he was recommended by Bill Harvey, who says that government and business, they need someone to explain climate science so they can take action. And you'll hear how dynamic... Tom is as a speaker. Two degrees of warming is is broadly speaking determined as dangerous levels of warming. I personally believe that we are already reaching dangerous levels of warming. And that's much earlier than two degrees. We're already seeing system-wide collapses. Mm. We're seeing mangroves collapse. We're seeing forests collapse. We're seeing marine kelp forests and coral bleaching already We have already reached Mm. dangerous levels of warming, and that cannot be overstated. And lastly, in this Dark Mofo program about Tasmania and what's going on down there, we'll speak to David Hamilton, who was also highly recommended. He represents Climate Tasmania, and he'll tell us what they are doing to achieve rapid reductions in greenhouse gases, as well as coping with the effects of climate change. During the show, you'll hear some small excerpts from a speech given by Greta Thunberg two weeks ago in Vienna. It was a summit of world leaders to implement the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And I think her words are very poignant. I hope it's okay for me to just use little bits of them to put in counterpoint to the other speakers. Certainly, if you watch the YouTube, you'll see she gets a standing ovation and then she goes back and sits quietly beside Arnold Schwarzenegger and then the Secretary of the United Nations. But the standing ovation and the massive clapping shows, I think, that there's an absolute hunger for the clear message that she 
brings us. Welcome listeners. I'm at Hobart City Council now and I have been very excited to hear that Hobart City Council just last Monday has passed a law for the climate emergency and biodiversity and I'd like to introduce you to Councillor Bill Harvey who I think is a bit of a catalyst in this small community. At the end of the world really we're at the, the next stop is Antarctica so Bill would you tell us about the excitement that night? Hi Vivian. Well last Monday, Monday the 17th of June 2019, Council after um, a bit of a you know, convoluted effort passed a, a motion that we would declare a climate and biodiversity emergency. And for me, that was a, a, a great a great night. We had a lot of people there from Extinction Rebellion in the crowd, dressed up and with their banners and their little animals on their shoulders and things. So it was great support from the community. But the process to get here was was a bit of a challenge. Put this forward a few weeks ago, and I had a walkout by three aldermen, which meant we had to, we couldn't go forward with that item on the agenda because there mm. wasn't a quorum. And that was you know very disingenuous of them and insulting really mm. and from that they actually it actually backfired on them because that drew a lot of attention to this mm. and the debate was interesting because councillors and aldermen who previously hadn't spoken about climate change or hadn't thought about it or hadn't been overly supportive of initiatives they were indifferent to some degree spoke um, highly favorable of all the activities the council mm. has done over the years because they started to do some homework and they realised that Hobart City Council had come a long way with its efforts um, in you know, mitigation with um, regard to climate change for over the last 20 years. So that was a positive. They still couldn't uh, get their head around the, the fact that there is an emergency. So that's a word that they didn't want to use. But at the end of the day, the vote was 8-3. The benefit of doing this is that it adds an intensity and a sense of urgency to this global crisis. And it's important that we do intensify our activity and intensify the understanding that we are living in a, an era that's critical to the future of civilization on the planet, really, that if we don't start to tackle climate change, and we've only got a decade is what the, the experts are telling us, and I believe the science, I, I take advice from the experts, I don't listen to politicians who have an, who have opinions i listen to people who who are basing their information on facts data and science you know developed over decades now so you know i'm a true believer in that we need to act yeah. now and it's urgent and we've got to get on with it and declaring an emergency hopefully flows up the chain to the state government to the federal government so now we'll be writing to both the prime minister and the premier urging them to do the same to declare climate emergency and uh, to put the resources in the right place to support local government and to support those who are looking at trying to address the effects of climate change and, the, and mitigation. But adaptation is the big thing now for council to look at. Um, we're sitting at the Hobart Town Hall and on the front there are these big red flags with the crosses on them and all around at night time, very late at night, 3am, people are out and about going to dark mofo events. I even went to a doom metal concert, <laughs> which nearly blew me off the floor, it was so loud. But it's quite an exciting atmosphere here and yet Hobart hasn't got that reputation or, or Tasmania in general has a reputation of being very sort of conservative and quiet and you know pulling the other way on many issues so I'm very pleased to see that you told me the United Nations has put Hobart high on city councils that are leading the way on regional cooperation and certainly this declaration is the first capital city 
in Australia to declare an emergency. So tell us about that. What, what's the seedbed of ideas? It's not just you. Mm-hmm. What, what's the groundswell of ideas here? Well, just with the, the UN recognition, um, we were invited to attend the COP24 conference in um, December last year and that was because we've got a relationship a growing relationship with Katowice and that was the host city for COP24 so they invited us across to participate in some regional collaborations Mm. so that was um working or or having forums with their regional grouping so Mm. there's a number they've got like I don't know probably a dozen sister cities Mm. and half a dozen of those sister cities attended COP and we had some forums at COP so Hobart participated in five forums so we were you know able to uh, show people what we've been doing in Hobart but a couple of the the main things that we've done is our Hobart Vision Statement which is a really powerful Mm. document that was developed by 1100 residents in Hobart that's become a, the overarching document for our strategies in Hobart. And that was very clearly focused around um, the environment, climate change. Mm. Well, biodiversity is in the title of your bill. And mm-hmm. I think that's important because, like everywhere around us, there's the Hobart city, but outside that is a lot of bushland, farmland. Mm. And there's a lot of a threat to the biodiversity, to small animals, to even species of trees with the bushfires you've just had recently. Like, there's a huge threat here from climate change. How is that going to play out um, in a city council strategies? Well, already we have what's a national first, but you know, potentially, I shouldn't say that because mm. I'm not 100% sure, but I understand it's a really significant document that we've created, which is our biodiversity action plan. On our staff... Uh, amongst our officers we have some amazing professionals there's quite a number of PhDs so we've got a very experienced staff mm-hmm. and we've got you know a large responsibility as a council to look after uh, the natural environment around Hobart so if that's the foothills of Mount Wellington across Mount Wellington lots, lots of bushland area yeah. several rivulets the foreshore of the river but we're prepared for that and we have what's what, what's called the biodiversity and fire unit. So we have, uh, I think it's 36 of our staff who are trained firemen. They come out and do the burns for mm. us. And, and we don't incinerate our bush. We burn in an ecological way. So our regen burns are actually regen burns based around ecology and understanding of the native, the native vegetation. Mm. Um, we're deploying our, our marsupial... Um, friends to help us with that so we're creating uh, marsupial lawns around the city so it means clearing a a barrier of bushland and we'll still be maintaining the the big old trees on that Mm. land but it'll be um, a grassed area and that'll be managed by um, our you know wallabies and things to keep the grass down so that'll be a buffer zone that'll give people that extra little bit of time in if there's ever well, when, when, we, mm. we don't say if, but when there's the catastrophic fires that mm. will come to Hobart, it'll give people that little bit of extra time to get out. Um, it'll give us time to be able to get appliances into the right locations to defend the city. But, yeah, it's an innovative approach to using, you know, the native mm. wildlife to help us defend ourselves um, in the event that we do have catastrophic fire. Hal, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? 
Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Climate change seems to be giving us a lot of weather events that are almost impossible to control. Like you've had, I interviewed Peg Putt, for example, just after Christmas, and she told me about the fires. In fact, she was surrounded by fires where she was living. And I was devastated by the kind of new type of fire she was describing. It was... Uh, Dry lightning fires. That's it. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we, we, the emissions are still rising uh, worldwide and Australia-wide. So how... How can your actions, is it consciousness raising or what is it that we can do? Well, my philosophy is mm-hmm. you've got to be a strong leader. Now, we are a leader. We've been recognised as a climate change leader mm-hmm. by the United Nations. We produce good content and good policies and good strategies. So we need to be a role model and that means we can influence others. Declaring a climate and biodiversity emergency has already influenced a lot of other councils around Australia. Yeah. They're looking over their shoulders now to, to see who's you know, going to be pushing them towards also declaring. I've had a lot of correspondence and Facebook messages from, from people in other jurisdictions that are pushing their councils now to do the same as we've done in Hobart. So we've created a catalyst for others to follow. So that's really important. So once we get that critical mass of councils all declaring climate emergencies, that will, that will eventually impact on the state governments and the, and the federal government. Mm. There's now 624 jurisdictions around the world, 24 councils in, in Australia yeah. and the ACT. You've got um, the UK, Scotland, Ireland, Canada declared a climate emergency mm. the other day. So it's a growing trend and the more pressure that we can put together on our national governments, the more chance they've got of acting. Okay, we're talking to Councillor Bill Harvey in Hobart, but Bill, now as a Tasmanian, I'd just like you to sketch for the Melbourne listeners and for our podcast audience who might be anywhere in the world, the sort of general picture in Tasmania, it's an island, it, it, it has a lot of hydropower, so I don't think you would be as emissions intensive, say, as New South Wales. So as a state, where do your emissions come from? How can you get them down? What's the potential for exporting energy here? Just with the hydro energy in Tasmania, so yes, we, we export hydro energy, but the projections are that it might not rain in the catchments in the future. So the hydro system may not be as effective as it is now. If it doesn't get the rain, if it doesn't fill up, then we won't have the same sort of energy supply. So we've got to be conscious of that. Uh, so we need to understand the modelling. We need to be able to say, well, what, what's the chances of, of us, you know, not having the hydro energy scheme in the future? So I think we need to look at other sources of energy, a mixed, you know, bag of sources, solar, wind, and energy efficiency as well, which is the big factor. If we use less, we don't have to produce as much. We can't rely on a national grid, mm. especially when you've only got, you know, the interconnectors across yep. Bass Strait. You can't rely on the rainfall into the future if it doesn't fall in the right place. So we've got to adapt the city to come up with our own solutions. Mm. And a distributed energy network yep. is in the in the mix of how to yep. do that. Bill, I'm a bit worried about young people who are devastated by the election results and they think there's no point in doing anything no one's doing anything about climate change and these are the big barriers to our future um talk to them well my advice for any young activist is to keep your chin up stay involved develop your skills develop your knowledge and develop your understanding of how you get change so for me personally what i focus on is what's the policy that we need 
and what's the strategy to get there. Some of the actions um, may not, they're the, the things that are further down, but you've got to, if you have a good policy, now let, let's use waste management as an analogy here. So our policy is basically zero waste to landfill by 2030. Our strategy is to look at all the different types of waste and to eliminate those. The actions are the last things you do. So we always focus on the actions first rather than what's the policy, what's the strategy, what are the outcomes we want to achieve. Mm. So don't get caught up in the small actions. It doesn't matter what colour you paint the banner or what the words on the banner are. It matters that you've got a strategy, and the strategy is to change the minds of these people. The strategy is to, you know, or the, or the, the objective is to change these people, to influence these politicians. How you do it, they're the actions. But get, stay with the big, the big picture stuff, mm. and the actions will follow later because there'll be hundreds of actions, and often you can get caught up discussing the minutia mm. rather than looking at, well, what's our overarching policy mm. what's the big picture strategies that we want to get done well the climate movement's made up of lots of different groups i can't t- tell how many groups there are and you said recently extinction rebellion has mm. popped up um what's the um way people should get involved because i think also people get burnt out in organizations too yeah yeah well i guess there's different levels so for me it's about the governance that that's the level i come in at and if you're good at making strategic decisions then that's your job if, if you want to be the the person that organizes the setup on the day i did that for a number of years as well because i had a vehicle that all the signs went in mm-hmm. my vehicle and i was the one who set up the market mm. and then as you progress you know to the to the leadership positions uh you've always got to be a good listener you've got to build trust in people so that people have confidence in being able to talk to you and confident that you'll be able to execute the task um, so there's a whole range of things mm. but understanding good governance is really important so it's what's your role as the, the coordinators as the people who make all the decisions and that's to be respectful listen to each other make sure that everybody speaks once before someone speaks twice mm. be across the issues and have a good strategy and focus on the outcome so we can do lots of actions and get a headline in the newspaper mm. but at the end of the day we want the outcome mm. we want the change we want the result what about people who say there's corruption in everything? You know, the elections are bought off by fossil fuel interests in the recent case, or this, there seems to be an atmosphere of it not being fair. It's not very democratic. It's not really democratic. It's uh, Elections are swayed by media in the last minute, all those yellow ads that popped up in all the papers. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> elections are swayed by money and advertising and those who control the, the narrative. You know, they, they present the media in a, the, the news in a particular way that influences people so you've got to deliver your message as well but what's the strategy to deliver your message you know what what's a clear message and you've got to be consistent and persistent like as a councillor I've focused on plastic pollution for ever since I've been on council so Mm -hmm. that's 12 years now Um, and we're now the first council in Australia to introduce a plastic pollution bylaw to get single-use plastics out of the waste stream. That's taken 12 years of effort of building my understanding, of building the confidence that people have in me and knowing and trusting Mm me on this topic. Climate change is the same. I now speak about climate change with a certain authority at council and people don't fight me or disagree with me. So learn your your material, stay on message, stick at it, be persistent because it's not going to happen straight away. You've got to be prepared to go the long haul and that's why we got a climate and emergency, climate change 
uh, emergency declaration passed because we've been working towards it for a while. You know, there's been mm. building the momentum, the understanding, yeah. celebrating the victories we've had or the success we've had with our climate change strategies, reminding people that we are a great council when it comes to doing certain things. They should, you know, be proud of their council. This is the next thing we can do. So then, you know, celebrate your, your, your successes, move on to the next thing, remind people how good we are about something mm bring them along it's their success as well so what we've achieved in Hobart is not me it's the 12 councillors mm. making sure that we have a majority of them so don't talk about I <laughs> talk about what we have done make sure they're included as well Fantastic. thank you Bill. cheers you're listening to 3CR community radio 855 on the am dial streaming live at 3cr.org.au and in Melbourne on 3CR digital but we children are not leaders nor are the scientists, unfortunately, but many of you here today are. Presidents, celebrities, politicians, CEOs, and journalists. People listen to you. They are influenced by you. And therefore, you have an enormous responsibility. And let's be honest, this is a responsibility that most of you have failed to take. The only, the only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take. And we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now, love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book, which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people. And you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and I, you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them. And you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. From grassroots to global. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental issues with a social justice slant. We are not convinced that GM food is safe. The ramming of the Adigil recently is definitely the furthest they've gone. They are sort of time bombs, these desalination plants. The government and the oil and gas sector, hand in hand, are playing this down. Tune in to Earth Matters on Sunday mornings at 11. Or catch the repeats at 10.30 on Monday and 6.30 on Wednesday mornings. Or download the podcast on 3CR's website. Welcome listeners to the Antarctic Climate and Ecosystems Cooperative Research Centre. I said hello to Amundsen as I walked in the front door, whose big statue is there. And I would like to introduce you to Thomas Remini. He is a science translator. Welcome, Thomas. You can explain a bit more who you are and the sort of science you do. But I want to talk, first of all, about communicating science, Antarctic science and climate science to an audience who already know about it from school, people in their 30s, but who are very disgusted even by the um, way the media treated the 
climate change in the last election, the way things turned out and how to go forward from that? Yeah, so my key role here is to translate the very large amount of climate information that we have available to us, petabytes and petabytes of information, into something that's useful and usable for end users, be that governments who need to make decisions, private enterprise, or even for the public. That's my key role. I'm a translator of climate information. Mm-hmm. And I'm, my, my official title is a climate research fellow and I'm a scientist just like everybody else, but I spend a lot of time talking to people about mm-hmm. what do they need to know and how can we transform the information that we have into something that's useful. Mm-hmm. One of the key things I want to get across is that um, it's been presented that we're only a single grain of rice mm-hmm. uh, in a big bowl. Like in that, you know, 1.3% is Australia's emissions. Well, that's actually not true. It's 4%. And the 4% is because we sell a lot of coal and we export that and we export a lot of gas. And we don't get that, those emissions go to somebody else's emissions profile. They don't go to ours. And if we included all of the sources that we mm-hmm. mine out of the ground and make available to others, then Australia's emissions go up to 4%. 4% which is the sixth largest emitter in the world. So if we made significant change in that space, then the world would notice and it would make a really big difference for, mm-hmm. you know, to the prices of those commodities and to other, to other areas. So we have a big role to play, and that shouldn't be un- understated. Um, the vested interests don't want us to understand that, but that is an important part. But most importantly, I want, like... I'm most worried about the social impacts of transitioning away from a fossil fuel economy. I'm really worried about the people of Queensland who are currently reliant on fossil fuels mm-hmm. as their main sources of income for their communities. How can, like, if we keep de- increasing our demand in that space, then they are going to, at some point, reach a cliff where they. We, we have no alternative pathway. And I feel like it's the government's responsibility to really help guide these communities away from fossil fuels, help them transition, um, help people retrain into alternative uh, jobs, alternative industries. And we have time to do that now. We had time, a lot more time, if you could take it back to when this issue was really in the political sphere properly about having a real crack at transitioning. It was in kind of the 90s. So we've kind of lost 20 years worth of transition time mm. and we're, and that's, that's my biggest, that's the thing I'm most worried about mm. is actually the social impacts across Australia for those that are currently still mm. uh, reliant on fossil fuels. Mm. So as a climate scientist who understands the risks that, uh, that our nation and the world is facing and understanding how the, the global economy is going to to transition in the very near future, that is the single thing that I'm most worried about. Coal miner, we're all coal miners. It it supports our community. Without the coal industry here, we'd be screwed pretty much. Well, one of the things we talk about often on this program is social licence. You know, you need social licence if you're going to open up a a mine and we've interviewed a lot of farmers up in Liverpool Plains, for example, and there's no social licence for new coal mines there because it's prime agricultural land. Marginal land less and now Northern Territory fracking. It's a very small population there and um, there may be no opposition really, not much opposition to that 
gas area being opened up. But social licence comes from people's culture. And you said, you know, your generation, you've been brought up with climate change and you, you know it's a, a fact, but there's a kind of denialism in something you said before where people don't want to know. So people know, but they don't want to know. It's a bit like, as you said, uh, something about alcohol. Can you yeah, speak sure. to that? So I think my favourite example of people just not wanting to believe the science is I was sitting around a table with um, a whole bunch of climate scientists. We were at a conference and we were having having a couple of drinks afterwards to you know discuss mm-hmm. our next research project. And somebody brought up this something that was in the news that day. The mm-hmm. World Health Organization had had released that any alcohol increases your risk of cancer. And around the table, all the researchers went, "I don't believe it." <laughs> we're having a glass of wine. We all enjoy enjoy having a glass. They didn't want to believe this change, so their first response was, I don't want to believe it. And I understand this is exactly the first response that most people have to climate science. Like, I am the bringer of bad news Mm. all the time. I walk into any room and I just... The the faces of everybody... Like, everybody's face drops Um. and just gets more and more depressed the more they hear about how climate change is going to impact our future. We 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 have incredible challenges that we need to address... Um, local councils are already dealing with these problems um, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to fund them, how they're going to change, uh, how, they, how their operations are going to opera, uh, work because some things just will become unviable into mm. the future. I'm talking to Tom Remini in Hobart and we've been talking about how uh, people don't want to believe. There's no real social oomph for it. I've been to Mona and Mofo here and there's thousands of people who want that, whatever that is, that transgressive, exciting late night thing. Why can't climate science be like that, that message? Why can't we embrace it to survive? After all, survival is a pretty sexy thing. Um, (laughs) What do you think about that? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges for a climate scientist to really get across to everyone is is the long time frames that we're talking about. Mm. It's very easy to say, oh, this isn't going to impact me. It's mm. going to impact my grandkids. Um, it's, it, it, you know, I care about that, but it's also how much time and energy do I put into that today to try yeah. and address that long-term problem. So it's not immediate. It's really hard to create that immediacy and urgency around this issue. Mm. The carbon dioxide that we released into the atmosphere 20, 30 years ago, Mm. we haven't seen the impact of that yet. Mm. That is coming. Mm. So the climate system has a lag in it, and that lag means that the result of your actions today are not seen for Mm. 20, 30 years. And that's a really hard kind of problem for humans to Mm. deal with. We're not good at that. We're good at the immediacy. Why does Mona have... The success, well, it's all about indulging your senses, which mm. is a, has an immediacy mm. about it, and that's why it's that's why it's so amazing. Apart from the fact that it's like it is incredible artistic presentation. Yeah. That's right. Everything mm. about it just you know really pummels your senses mm. in ways that are really exciting and interesting, yeah. and so that that's why it it engages people so well. Yeah. Climate change doesn't have that. It's yeah. it's very slow. It's very insidious Mm. and it's hard to kind of link your everyday activities to uh what's happening 
around mm. the world. But it touches a panic button in, like, Greta Thunberg. She says, I want you to panic. And people go, oh, no, 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 we mustn't panic. We must plod along. But Extinction Rebellion has come up recently, and they clogged up all the traffic in order to make you understand that this is stopping the traffic. They went to the British Museum and laid down with all the dinosaurs to show that in this this small time scale, really, since the dinosaurs to us, that's a small time scale in Earth's whole time scale, we are about to become extinct and we're already making species extinct. They they are dramatising this reality. So it is. I think it is quite an exciting thing to repackage in a way that people will suddenly get it. The longer we wait, the harder it will be to turn this around. So let's not wait any longer. Let's start acting. For too long, the people in power have gotten away with basically not doing anything to stop the climate and ecological breakdown. They have gotten away with stealing our future and selling it for profit. That was Greta Thunberg. A poignant request was made to world leaders in Austria just two weeks ago at a summit for implementing the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And now I ask Tom Remini in Hobart about Antarctica. Look, in 1989, Bob Hawke, who we've just heard commemorated because he died recently, Bob Hawke led the push to reject mining in Antarctica and to preserve it as a natural reserve for peace and science. This was exciting, an exciting development. It wasn't a consensus opinion. It was out there with, the, I think, the French Premier at the time. And I read about this recently, and it, it was a huge public... Um, effort, you know, letter writing campaigns from Greenpeace and so on, thousands and thousands of letters to Bob Hawke to pressure that. There weren't people lying down in the streets or barricading anything, but it was a very big popular push for him to do that. He achieved that, and now um, the Antarctic is still a preserve for science, and even though it's melting at a greater rate than the rest of the main middle part of the world, I think, um, I'd like you to now... I mean, that's an achievement. That is the sort of thing that I think we need to see, isn't it? We need to have some big switches like that. That could have been mined now if if that hadn't happened, if that agreement hadn't happened. I'd like you to now tell us what is the importance of Antarctica to the global ecosystem. That's more a science question, but, you know, it was achieved by that political push. Antarctica, the way that the global oceans work is... The Antarctic helps drive how the oceans move and transfer heat around the planet. Um, The Southern Ocean is the only circumpolar ocean in the world. It's the largest current um, in all of Mm. the world, Um, and it moves an enormous amount of heat um, around the planet and also moves a lot of uh, other nutrients and and chemicals as Mm. well. So... Its physical importance is, is enormous for maintaining the climate in the way that we have come to expect it. The, on, on these kind of large geological scales, the climate has always changed and the position of tectonic plates has driven what the climate will be at different mm. parts in different regions of the world and also how global average temperature changes. And Antarctica is important in that context. Um, the ice that is, that is locked up on Antarctica changes the sea level around the world. There's three kilometres of ice sitting on top of the Antarctic continent. Mm. 
um, we know that at current temperatures in the geological record if we at the global temperature that we are now sea levels should be about 50 50 meters higher than they are today so the only thing that researchers around the world argue over is how rapidly are we going to transition from the current sea level, which we assume is approximately mm. at zero, mm. to 50 metres higher than it is today. Now, most people believe that's going to be a relatively slow process, which means that it'll take you know maybe two to 300 years to reach that. Um, so that's slow by human standards, yeah. but incredibly rapid by geological standards. Yeah. Can I just ask you, some people I've read say that we are already locked in to two degrees of warming, if not a path to three or four degrees warm. With the present emissions we've got, if we can't get a grip on the emissions, like radical grip on it, descent of those emissions, we will be locked in to four degrees. Are you seeing that? Are we locked in? We are locked in to two degrees of warming, pretty much. We... Base, we can achieve different scenarios mm. where we can avoid two degrees of warming by, you know, maybe half a degree. Um, but based on the political leadership around the world at the moment, that seems highly unlikely to me. Um, although I am not a social scientist, mm. I am not a political scientist, and that's an important distinction to make. I'm a climate scientist. I study how the climate works. I don't study which pathway are we following. Mm. At present, we are tracking on the highest emissions scenario. There are scenarios that have been modelled that have us tracking on the highest emissions scenario for some time and then rapidly transition towards a um, carbon neutral or even carbon negative economy. Mm. So it is possible and it can be achieved. I think there is a crisis in the fact that we are currently tracking along a high emissions scenario and there is very limited evidence across the globe that we are going to transition fast enough to a low carbon economy Mm. and then to a negative. We need to get to a negative carbon Mm. economy. A negative carbon economy, we need to be sequestering more than we're releasing um, relatively soon in order for us to avoid two degrees of warming. Now... A very important point, though. Two degrees of warming is, is, is broadly speaking, uh, term in, determined as dangerous uh, levels of warming. Mm. I personally believe that we are already reaching dangerous levels of warming. Yeah. And that's much earlier than two degrees. We're already seeing system-wide collapses. Mm. We're seeing mangroves collapse. We're seeing forests collapse. We're seeing marine um, kelp forests and coral bleaching already. We have already reached mm. dangerous levels of warming, and that cannot be overstated. Although when we get to two degrees of warming, the, the impacts will be far more dramatic and far more damaging not just to the natural environment, which of course doesn't have the capacity to adapt in the same way that human settlements do, Mm. but the human settlements, the vast majority of us live on the coast Mm. and a lot of the impacts that we see are going to be increased um, high severity storms, increased intensity of rainfall, increased um, frequency of heat waves, increased um, intensity of those heat waves. Um, these are going to be very large, broad-scale um, events that our systems are not cu- 
currently built to to respond well to um, and this is something that is that is really concerning governments at every level um, all those that work in this space so I think you know can we achieve it yes we can are we currently on the path to achieve it? I think there needs to be some big social changes if we're going to achieve it. And I'm really excited about the young people coming through today. Yeah. I am so excited about when they start voting. <laughs> and, you know, we need to vote differently. Yeah. We need to vote for people who are leading and want to lead. We, we don't. We need to stop voting for followers. Yeah. We need to, need to vote for leaders. Thank you. We've been talk, talking to Tom Remini at the ACE CRC. Climate, he's part of the Climate Futures team in Hobart. I know you are desperate for hope and solutions, but the biggest source of hope and the easiest solution is right in front of you and has been all along. And it is us people and the fact that we don't know we humans are not stupid. We are not ruining the biosphere and future living conditions for all species because we are evil. We are simply not aware. But once we understand, once we realize the situation, then we act, we change. Humans are very adaptable. So instead of only being obsessed with finding solutions to a problem that most of us do not even know exists. You must also focus on informing us about the actual problem. We must acknowledge that we do not have all the solution now. We must admit that we do not have the situation under control. And we must admit that we are losing this battle. We must stop playing with words and numbers because we no longer have time for that. And in the words of author Alex Stefan, winning slowly is the same thing as losing when it comes to the climate crisis. The longer we wait, the harder it will be to turn this around. So let's not wait any longer. Let's start acting. For too long, the people in power have gotten away with basically not doing anything to stop the climate and ecological breakdown. They have gotten away with stealing our future and selling it for profit. But we young people are waking up. And we promise we will not let you get away with it anymore. We've heard tonight from Councillor Bill Harvey about Hobart's declaring a climate emergency. And then we heard from climate scientist Tom Remeni that we are on a terrible trajectory to hothouse earth. And I've asked David Hamilton from Climate Tasmania to tell us how Tasmania can radically cut its emissions. So welcome, David, and tell us first what it's like where you are. Uh, Tasmania is a beautiful place, of course. We've just gone through a spell of very uh, clear weather, which in the middle of winter here means it's been cold, with thirty frosts, with some lovely sunshine during the day. Yes, I've just come back from Tasmania and I loved it, the mist in the morning and the uh, crisp nights, and especially with dark mofo in uh, Hobart, there were so many fascinating-looking people going around with red outfits. It was very festive. Yes, 
<laughs> okay. Now, back in 2016, I want to really pick your brains about the energy sector and how you can get to 100% because Tasmania really has a chance to do that. It has in the past. So back in 2016, when the dams were low and the Bass Strait link was down, you had a crisis in Tasmania, and I want, and, and I think you went back to gas and diesel for your electricity. I'd like you to tell us what has happened since then. First of all, the, the cable was finally uh, repaired, and um, that's that's good for Tasmania's energy security in that that it, it enables us to import electricity from the mainland if we if we're in trouble here. It also allows us, if we have surplus, to export to the mainland. The other thing that's happened is that the criteria for managing this water storage levels have been changed to be more conservative. There's now an expectation already, an understanding, that rainfall runoff into our water storages has changed because of climate change. It's not so much that rainfall has reduced, although we have had some dry years in Tasmania. It's because of the increased temperatures, which means the soil is drier at the end of summer, and when it starts raining again, it takes more rain to saturate the soil and therefore lead to runoff. So runoff into our water storages is down and is likely to stay down and potentially get worse. So our water storages do not feel so reliably, and that was the the, the heart of the problem. You don't have 100% renewable energy now, do you? And I would... I have wondered why you can't actually generate 200% of your, of energy because you're in the roaring 40s, those islands at the top King Island and that they're in the roaring 40s. Surely that will be a fabulous wind potential there. Yes, yes, we have. We, we are, we're really blessed with uh, very good wind potential in Tasmania as well as our existing hydroelectricity and solar isn't to be sneezed at here either. We're not that close to Antarctica. We still get reasonable amount of sunshine. But wind is really the, the big one apart from hydro that we could use. And it's just that there, aren't, there hasn't been a, a big history of it. We've got two major w- wind farms, one in the northwest corner of the state and the other is in the northeast corner of the state. They've been up and running for a while now. Um, and we've got two new ones under construction, one on the, on the west coast, Granville Harbour, and another one in the Central Highlands. But yes, our, our potential is huge. There's a uh, talk of a one gigawatt wind farm on Robbins Island, which is in the northwest of the state. That would require a separate interconnector to uh, the mainland because there'd be times when our demand wouldn't be as big as the one gigawatt. Wind is a, a very major potential. In fact, Tasmania could get to the situation, if this was managed properly, where the hydro basically just fills in the gaps between wind and solar. But we're a long way off that yet. Is the emergency uh, that Hobart Council declared, is that starting to be, are other people starting to get into emergency thinking? I mean, state government seems to be always the laggards. And I think the public is a bit of a laggard too, really. They, they know about electricity prices, but they don't really think about words like emissions or fossil fuels. And I've been wondering if people shouldn't be put on sort of carbon ration cards at first just to record how much coal, oil and gas they're actually using. And I wonder if that would change their behaviour. It certainly would. There have been suggestions of doing that, not any in Australia that I'm aware of, but the United Kingdom Parliament actually had a committee of inquiry that looked into what was called tradable energy quotas, which was, which was essentially a rationing system for carbon emissions. I think the language has been a problem. I think the fact that everyone talks about emissions 
makes it sound too abstract. Essentially, the emissions that are causing the problem have been the burning of fossil fuels. And even though that's now more talked about than it used to be, it's still a problem because I'm not sure that everyone understands what fossil fuels are. So I, I talk about coal, oil and gas as being the three main fossil fuels, with oil, of course, being uh, split up into its major uses like gasoline, diesel, uh, jet fuel. And if, if our language had been more specific about coal, oil and gas as being the problem, I think we would be actually a bit further down the road than we are now. Yes, I think it's a matter of public education. I don't know if that's part of Climate Tasmania's role, but I think people need to start using that language. And I noticed that in the papers you sent me, that you felt that should change. So who's going to change it? Well, we are certainly doing our small bit in Climate Tasmania to do that, to do that education. I think we need to look to the media to help change that. And we, we need to look to government leadership to provide some straight talking, which we're not getting. No. Well, look, Climate Tasmania wants all large and medium users of fossil fuels to initially report their usage. And I thought that was a good idea. Don't, don't um, punish them for it, but make them report it and make them conscious of what they're doing. And you've said that what is measured can be managed. So I'd like to take the example of the ferry I came across to Tasmania from uh, Melbourne. It was the Spirit of Tasmania. And there were many hundreds of passengers and many trucks. I was surprised how many freight trucks were on that ferry. But I asked the captain what my ticket, what carbon footprint it would have had, one ticket or one truck on that. And he said it was very difficult to calculate and he wouldn't be able to tell me. So I wonder how would a transition plan work for businesses like this, like a ferry business or anything which is carbon intensive? Yes. Um, in fact, our view is that you do it by not talking emissions. You talk about the fuel. So, and you talk about the fuel used in the units that it's normally traded in. And the idea being that you expect to see a reduction. And so there'd be a public database for the larger users. They'd be required to report quarterly. And everyone could see how much was being used by who and uh, could see how, what progress they were making to reduce that usage. But how would you transition, though, with those two things, ferry, like um, shipping fuel and aviation fuel, all the, the ways people get to Tasmania and also freight gets to Tasmania? These are very carbon-intensive, both of them. Yes, they are. And you've gone to the really hard cases first. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the aviation is probably the hardest. And in, in a way, because we're an island state and we rely on aviation, we need to see faster progress from the others the other areas that are easy to do to try and give aviation a bit of wriggle room. But even then, I just don't see that the current projected growth of aviation can be possible. No. Well, look, that brings me to my last question. It's disruptive. All of what we're talking about is disruptive. Climate change is disruptive and the economy is going to be disrupted big time. How would you minimise the economic disruption that the transition we all know has to come will happen. So it's not so messy, it's not so chaotic. That's one of the really most important questions. The, the best way to minimise economic disruption is by starting now. So you give yourself a little more time. We still have to do this very quickly, but at least it won't be a complete sort of crash stop. We can, we've got some years to phase things out. And then you try to do it in a managed way so that, that you look 
after people who might be adversely impacted. It's absolutely essential that this transition be a just transition, one that looks after people so that, that people who use uh, energy and have got, haven't got the financial means to do other things are supported through it. I mean, a good example is in Tasmania, we actually use a bit of coal. It's locally mined and locally used by only a few big users, but there's a, a community in Tasmania that's built around the coal mines and they rely on that for employment and there are some major industrial users rely on coal for their operation. So all those groups need to come together and work out what alternatives there are and how they can be supported through the transition. It's, it's, a, it's a particularly tricky one, the coal one, but it is possible. That requires effort and goodwill and honesty. One of the big problems that we see is that everywhere around Tasmania and around Australia, people are buying things that use coal, oil and gas, particularly oil. They buy cars, they buy trucks, they buy tractors, they buy ships, they buy some aircraft, you know, they buy all sorts of things and they expect those things they're buying to be able to be used for their normal economic life. But if we're going to have a safe climate, that's not going to be possible. And yet, no one's talking about it. This is a gross failure of leadership on behalf of all our political parties and all our political leaders. Fundamental problem that people are relying on a fuel we can't afford to use to, if we're going to have a safe climate, that that fundamental problem just needs to be talked about. Well, maybe the ideas will be popping up in, in Tasmania. I was very interested to see all the artistic ideas and in the history museums, all the revisioning of history really quite advanced thinking and progressive. So I was surprised and happy to see that. And I'm just hoping climate change, which is everyone, a lot of them are holding their head under, under the sand, trying to keep it all going as usual. But as you say, you're trying to get the thoughts out there. And you said to me that they were radical thoughts. I don't think they're radical at all. They sound very sensible. So thank, thank you for sharing them with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Vivian. That was the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Tonight we heard a special on Tasmania and I spoke to Bill Harvey who is a councillor in Hobart City Council, Tom Remini who works as a science translator at the ACE CRC in Hobart and David Hamilton who represents Climate Tasmania. I hope you enjoyed the show. My name is Vivian Langford and production tonight was by Andy Britt. Thank you for listening and good night and good luck. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au
Gliding through the seaweed, what strange things I see below. Cars are waiting, wind chills wiping the 